House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Today we're going to be talking about uh, a book called, which has just come out, and it's called A Convenient Man, and I have both authors with me today, and it's revolving around um, the, the 1957 murder of Maria Riddle, which um, we've covered a few times before. So here we go. We've got uh, Dennis Tomlinson and Jeffrey Dean Doty. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's just introduce you to the audience. So first of all, uh, Jeffrey, um, maybe give a little bit about uh, your history and and uh, how you got into this case. Well, I, um, this is actually my second uh, book on the case, but the first one was more about uh, how I discovered that a man had been wrongfully imprisoned. This one is more in-depth on how it, uh, uh, how the investigation went bad, basically. And uh, I started, got interested in this because I knew two of the attorneys that were involved in this case uh, during Jack McCullough's prosecution and defense. I knew one of the prosecutors, Victor S. Garcita, and I knew the public defender who represented him, Tom McCulloch. Right. They were friends, and we started talking about the case, and I really wasn't all that interested in writing about it until I discovered it was the oldest cold case in U.S. history ever to successfully go to trial, and the history buff in me is what took over then. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, now, let's go to Dennis. Uh, let's, let's talk about you and, and how you got involved. Well, I'll go back to my birth. I was born in Sycamore, which was the city, or actually the small town, where the crime occurred. I uh, grew up nearby, and to this day, I probably have two or three memories related to this. Um, and I really can't say that I paid an awful lot of attention to it through my life, other than the fact that I was aware of it. Everyone was aware of it because life changed after this happened, um, not in a good way for the little kids. Um, I think I was reinterested in it in 2012 when I heard about the uh, a person being convicted. And my first thought was, oh, they convicted a guy in this. And it's, it's all these years later. That's wonderful. And then Jeff told me, because Jeff, uh, Jeff and I have known each other for a long time. Jeff told me he was writing a book about it. So when his book came out, I bought it and I read it. And I promptly decided that he must have something wrong because his conclusion is uh, different than what the uh, investigators and the prosecution and the trial had determined. Um, so I, I also read the other book that came out about this, uh, Footsteps in the Snow, which was very much pro-investigators and, and pro-prosecutors, and uh, watched the uh, documentary that was made based on that other book. And... Um, I also got uh, involved uh, with Casey Porter, who I'm sure you're aware is Jack McCullough's son-in-law, um, and through his website started exchanging emails and messages with him about the case. And, of course, he's a very strong advocate for, for his father-in-law, Jack, that he didn't do this. 
So he kept trying and trying and trying to convince me. So ultimately, I got to a point where I looked at the prosecution's theory of the crime, tried to make sense out of it. I couldn't. Um, I, my, by trade, I'm an engineer, so my next step was to look at everything that didn't fit and try to tweak it in a way that made things start falling into place. And quite frankly, the more I tweaked it, the more absurd the story became. So eventually I got to the point where I just threw my palms to the air and said, Casey is right. Jeff is right. And so I kept watching this case as it went through uh, the appeals process. And when the appeal process was uh, resolved or maintained that Jack McCullough's murder charge stayed in effect, um, I started thinking that uh, this story is going on. This is continuing from uh, from Jeff's book and from uh, all other reporting that had gone on. So I started thinking uh, another book is needed. And uh, that's how I got to the level of... Uh, trying to get someone, because I'm not capable of writing a book on my own, of trying to recruit somebody to um, to write a book with me. And that someone turned out to be Jeff after quite a bit of coaxing, which well, I'm sure Jeff would like to, yeah, Jeff would probably do a better job of describing than I would, because he didn't say yes right away. In fact, he didn't say yes for the first few times I asked. I think it was only a result of my pestering uh, that he finally relented. And yeah, said, okay, I think we'll it took like three months of pestering before I finally yeah. gave in. I kept telling him, why don't you write it and I'll edit it for you. <laughs> and he insisted, I'm not a writer, you're the writer, so uh, you write it, I'll do all the research. And that's that's when we came to our collaboration. So when you did this, um, you must have both been uh, on the same mindset of uh, – um, where you want it to go with this book and kind of what you want it to get across to people. Um, so uh, whoever wants to answer this can, but um, so if someone picks up your book and reads it and, they, and after they've finished reading it, um, what do you want them to walk away with? What's the, what's the key item that you think is important? Uh, I think it's, the key item is to understand how much power the police and prosecutors have with no re real repercussions. I mean, there have been lawsuits in this case, which they have settled. But as far as the police officers and the, the original investigators and the prosecutors, it's no skin off their nose because uh, the government bodies pay for it all. And they they walk away scot free. I I think that's just wrong, uh, because there there is no accountability then. And I think that's where the true message of this is, is uh, when you have um, people with that much power, the power to shape a story any way they want, to whether it's uh, fits the facts or not, and get away with it. There's nothing to stop anyone from doing it again. We really need to address that. And I think uh, most of the people that read the book, uh, from what I'm hearing, they're very outraged. And I think rightfully so. I would, I would agree with that. I think outrage would be the desired result, um, succinctly. Well, so, so what exactly um, 
do you think should happen to the police? Like, where where do you want to go with this? As in, um, and what exactly is the 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 level of where they should be held accountable personally? So, um, for instance, so if a police uh, detective just makes a mistake and they convict someone wrong just from faulty police work. Yeah, on, honest mistakes. Honest mistakes should not be punished. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. Yeah, but what I think is, when you go to the point that you're trying to hide the truth, uh, not only from uh, judges, uh, from jurors, you're trying to hide the truth from uh, the defendants, uh, you know, and the defense itself then you're crossing a line. And when you can change the date, like the original crime, as near as we've been able to pin down, happened between 6.45 p.m. and 6.55 p.m. on uh, December 3rd, 1957. And they changed the date of the crime to sometime shortly after 6 o'clock, between 6 and 6.20 in order to make it possible for the crime to fit Jack McCullough. Not because that's what the facts were, because the facts absolutely show that it did not happen then. And then he had an eyewitness that supported his alibi, and they hid that. They uh, reported her uh, answers to their questions as being the opposite of what she said, um, his girlfriend verified that he was uh, he made their date that night and they said that she said he never showed up and they hit her from the defense. Uh, they told the defense at one point that uh, they decided not to call her to uh, before the judge uh, to put her on the stand. And so they sent her home. And the truth is, they didn't send her home until six days after the trial was over. So these are these are serious, serious crimes, and they'll never be held accountable for that. A man lost five years of his life at the age of seventy-two behind bars because of what? Because they were ambitious? Because they felt he was guilty? That's not a reason. The thing that people have to understand as public servants uh, in, the ju in the justice system is we don't, the citizens don't pay you to find a criminal. They f pay you to find the right criminal. And we, we have no doubt that the investigators uh, very early in their investigation uh, decided that Jack McCullough was their guy and that nothing that came up that looked exculpatory was going to, was going to steer them away from that course. Everything that came up that, uh, indicated that McCullough might not be the guy just became an obstacle to be worked around. Not something that was going to cause them to, to stop and, uh, reevaluate and say, you know, I don't think he did this. Uh, in particular, when, it, uh, two years into the investigation, when they got the old ancient FBI reports, they had the entire story in front of them. This was back in 2010, two years before the trial. Um, they had the all the interviews that showed what time the uh, abduction took place. 
and they had uh, Jack uh, uh, John Tessier, which was uh, Jack's name at the time. They had all the specifics of his alibi, the alibi that had uh, satisfied the FBI and uh, told him that um, you're fine, you can go away now. You can go. He, he was going to enlist in the Air Force, and they told him after the investigation that um, you didn't do it. And yet here he was all these years later uh, being charged and tried for it again. Yeah, all they had to do was wait for all his alibi witnesses to die, to die. Yeah. or, you know, develop Alzheimer's and forget, and they were able to charge him at will. So, so when we look at um, the people that, that brought it back into the attention of the police, his, um, what, stepsisters or half-sisters? Yeah, his half-siblings. Um, what's your opinion on them? Like They... they um, they were pretty doggedly, like they really pursued this with several uh, policing agencies until they got it to where he was, you know, arrested and tried. Um, and it took them quite a bit. Uh, what's your opinion on them and why? And, and why, why were they so convinced of his guilt? Well, I think part of it may have been adult sibling rivalry. Uh, as you, as you mentioned, he was, they were half siblings. Uh, they had a different father. And, uh, Jack, from everything we hear from the Tessier family, Jack was pretty well protected by, uh, you know, his mother. And so they felt that he got away with everything. And I think they came to the conclusion that, you know, he may have done this for whatever reason that they believe this. And uh, so they just felt that he was getting away with yet something else, but on a much larger scale, you know, getting away with murder, literally. And so they wanted to, you know, see him finally what they would have felt is justifiably punished. There's certainly a, a great deal of, animosity in that family it, it, to say it's dysfunctional it would be an understatement i just wonder if uh, could this be really a, a result as if um from the one sister accusing him of of you know raping her and and sexually assaulting her yeah um an interesting note on that when um the first trial that jack had to go through was a rape trial with those accusations um, that he had raped his sister. And uh, he was acquitted of that, and I think with good cause. There really wasn't any evidence that, uh, there really wasn't any evidence that of any uh, rape. They could find no witnesses. They could find nothing um, to support it. And Jack's attorney at that time, Regina Harris, made an interesting observation to me. Um, he's, she said that uh, she found it interesting that his sister Jean had said that she had experienced every single type of rape, just shy of rape murder. And uh, she was a rape counselor. And so she, while she didn't say anything, I was left with the feeling that she thought maybe she was padding her resume. But we don't know. And nobody will ever know the truth of that. I mean, Jack always denied it. 
his sister always said it was so, but uh, I don't know uh, if there's a this is a continuation of the uh, sibling rivalry, if it's better bitter feelings, or if it actually happened. We'll never know. Yeah, I I I, I think I remember him um, sort of admitting to being um, fooling around with her, but. Yeah. yeah. So that, that in itself, this could be, I'm not even going to go into the details, but what I'm saying is this could, in a way, be kind of uh, their get back at him, like they tried to do something to him years ago, he got he got to quit it. This might just be kind of their anger at him. It's certainly probably, yeah, I would say it certainly is. There's definite animosity there. Um, Jack, uh, I spoke with Jack the other night, and he mentioned that one of the things that hurt him most deeply was when he was sentenced, or when he was found guilty of the mur- kidnapping murder of Maria Ridolph, his entire family stood up and cheered like a touchdown had just been scored in the big game. What's your opinion, then, of Kathy Sigmund, the 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 eyewitness, you know, because she, it took her a long time, and then her memory was, it was from years ago and all that, but she was kind of a key witness in there. So do you have a, a feeling about her in, in any sort of light? I, I think she was an innocent in this. I think she was highly manipulated by the, um, by the police, and uh, they gave her a loaded... Um, they gave her a loaded picture lineup for her to look at. Uh, she received six pictures to look at, and in those pictures, um, five of them were from a high school yearbook, and they all had the light background and all of the um, all of the people in those pictures were looking up and away from the back, uh, from the camera. They all were wearing nice suit and tie. And then the Jack, the picture that they showed her of Jack uh, was a dark, rainy picture uh, taken, at, obviously, at a nightclub. And, you know, he doesn't have the suit, the full suit on. And he's the only one that's looking straight out at the camera. And during her process of, of uh, going through it, she used a process of elimination in order to arrive. Right. The way eyewitness IDs are done today, uh, well, Dennis can tell you. Yeah, the, that's a very bad process uh, to allow. She was, she was allowed to actually look at the remaining three. She'd eliminated three during what's called a sequential pass, um, the first time through sequential pass. And then there were three remaining pictures, and they were all laid down side by side. And she was allowed to look at all three of those um, and then eliminate one uh, and then stared at uh, at Jack's and then one other picture for we don't know exactly how long, uh, perhaps 30 seconds, perhaps a minute, before she said it was Jack. Um, that is um, a relative comparison, and it's... It's basically uh, asking the eyewitness which one of these looks most like the the your memory of what the perpetrator looked like, as opposed to asking them is are any of these pictures the perpetrator? 
And there's a, a very big difference between those two. Uh, there's a lot of uh, mistaken eyewitness identifications that happen because of this side-by-side uh, -side comparison. Um, in fact, in many states, that's illegal anymore. And I think in Illinois, as of maybe two, January of 2016, 16, okay, uh, that's no longer illegal in Illinois either. It's also no longer in Illinois for the for the police officer conducting the uh, eyewitness uh, procedure to know who the suspect is. And in the in this case, uh, Hanley, who was the uh, lead detective on it, was the one that presented it to her, and he knew exactly who the witness was. And they have found in countless studies that when the police officer knows who the subs uh, who the suspect is, they give off. Uh, subliminal cues, you know, maybe they hesitate a little longer laying down that one or picking it up, you know, whatever. It's not, they're nonverbal cues, but it does heavily influence the witness. Yeah, this, this eyewitness procedure was, was not recorded, either video or audio. Uh, as far as we know, there were no pictures uh, because nothing was ever turned over to defense on discovery. And that too is also bad procedure. Uh, the obvious reasons why you would, why the defense would want to see uh, a recording of the eyewitness procedure is to see that the procedure was followed in a, a scientifically approved way. This one wasn't. And in fact, Jeff said earlier that he thinks Kathy was manipulated. Uh, we know that Kathy made a mistake because we know where, ja where John Tessier was at the time of the crime and he wasn't there. So it was a mistaken eyewitness identification, and whether uh, uh, Hanley uh, influenced her that that decision, um, it sure strongly feels like it is, but we'll never know the specifics because we have no recording. Were you guys able to talk to Kathy um, this time around when you were writing? No, no, they. Uh when I talked to her with talked to her before, while I was writing Piggyback, the first book, and uh, after I came out with my conclusions that Jack was innocent in Piggyback, uh, I really have had no significant contact with the Chapmans, and they have made it clear um, that uh, Kathy and her husband Mike want nothing to do with any further interviews on the on the case by anybody. So, so Dennis, you said you uh, were born there, Sycamore. Right. Um, were you living there at the time that all of this happened in 1957? I was living in a small town eight miles away. That town is, is Genoa. It's eight miles to the north of Sycamore. So I was aware, I think probably the following morning, my mother probably told me, um, I have several cousins who were living there at the time. One cousin who was even a classmate of Maria Ridoff's at the time, um, but other cousins who knew the principals, both the Tessiers and the Ridoffs knew Maria, and uh, and other uh, significant players in this story. And I interviewed uh, pretty much all of them to get whatever I could from them. Well, I was going to say, what was the what was the general impression of of Jack? Um, back then, so when it happened in 57, um, 
how was he thought of in the town? He was, he was thought of as kind of an odd duck. He was uh, somewhat of a loner. He only had a couple of close friends. Um, he was involved with a, uh, a couple of clubs at school. But uh, even then, he really, according to him, he only had two close friends. And that pretty much is supported by everything that we've heard. Yeah. He was he was often thought of as being a, a bit odd. And one of those close friends, I won't say the name, but one of those close friends um, was sent to Stateville Prison the following year for... Uh, attempted uh, molestation of a young girl, so so that's sort of an indication of what his friends. I think the other friend was probably a, a better guy. Yeah, that's that's the impression I've got. He maybe hung out with one guy that was a ne'er do well and one guy that was a little bit of a boy scout. Yeah. yeah. What what made them the police uh, pick him and kind of focus on him? originally like what what was it about jack that they uh picked up on? well in 19 uh they they didn't really pick up on him it was during a neighborhood sweep by the fbi when they knocked on the door at the test year's house they were told by uh, his parents that we have an 18 year old son whose description roughly matches the description in the local newspaper and his name is john so he became a suspect right then and there so uh, we we have reasonable um, confidence that uh, Jack's father, Ralph Tessier, knew the chief of police, and the chief of police almost certainly knew the members of the Tessier family, including John. And he never referred John as a as a suspect. Uh, we we have reason to believe that uh, Ralph was well known by the county police out there, whose office was also in Sycamore. And uh, they never recommended any of the Tessier people. And, of course, these people were referring all sorts of uh, potential suspects to the FBI. But they never recommended uh, John Tessier. So John became a suspect when the, when the FBI just stopped by and knocked on the door to do a search and to question, uh, to question anyone who lived there who may have anything to contribute to their investigation. No, they did not. No, they thought they had one uh, a few days afterwards, but uh, Kathy Sigmund failed to identify him, and eventually the case against him, just that person, uh, never developed. Yeah, they had no physical evidence because uh, the only thing, thing they really could have gotten physical evidence from, uh, which was Maria's doll, which they knew this guy had uh, had handled, uh, was passed around among uh, so many people that it became impossible to get a clean fingerprint off of it. It became useless as evidence, so they had no physical evidence. All they had is one eyewitness, Kathy, and uh, most detectives that I know have said that, uh, you know, after about two weeks, eyewitnesses are absolutely useless. Mm -hmm. Which, um, you know, when you think that they used Kathy as an eyewitness 55 years later, that's completely ridiculous. Yeah, another thing Kathy did, um, this was like 19 days after the kidnapping, the, um, 
FBI hauled her up to Madison, Wisconsin to view a lineup. Madison had, uh, uh, the Dane County uh, Sheriff had arrested someone the day before who had uh, attempted to molest a little nine-year-old girl up there. So uh, Kathy was hauled up there the very next morning to view a lineup that included this guy. And the lineup also included four fillers who were uh, current prisoners of the Dane County Jail in Madison, Wisconsin. And lo and behold, Kathy picked out someone else as being identical to Johnny. And, of course, this someone else certainly wasn't Johnny. He was very quickly alibied out. Um, even though he wasn't a good person, he was not a kidnapper or a murderer uh, by any means. So once Kathy made that identification, uh, by today's standards, she would be considered uh, of, of no value as an eyewitness to the prosecution or the investigators anymore because she had demonstrated that her memory of what the, the perpetrator looked like was no longer viable. And yet there she was, 53 or 54 years later, showing a photo lineup. Wasn't her description... Uh, it, didn't it change as well? Wasn't it kind of, it, it didn't really fit Jack? Didn't, what, wasn't it about the teeth being different and the hair and all that too originally? Yeah, the teeth, she had a, an upper eye, upper right eye tooth that um, on alternate descriptions would either be there and then not be there. Um, she described someone whose age was quite a bit older than Jack at the time. Jack was 18. And her initial description was uh, 24 or 25. And over time, well, she was asked to give several descriptions. Over time, that range expanded to something like from as young as 20 to as old as 35. The gentleman she identified in uh, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, was, I believe, he was close to 35. I don't think he was actually that old. But, you know, that's almost twice uh, what John Tessier's age was at the time. And, of course, she said he was identical. And he was quite a bit shorter than Jack he as well. Very much shorter. Yeah, he yeah. was like 5'6", I think. Yeah, 5'5 five, five and a half, 5'4", whatever. Uh, very close to that. And Jack, uh, John Tessier was 5'10", 5'11", at the time. Uh, the other gentleman who the FBI thought uh, very strongly could be it in the like three or four days after the uh, kidnapping was 30 years old, and he was also about five foot six inches tall. So there were there were some strong physical differences between uh, John Tessier and the descriptions Kathy was giving at the time. Yeah, and the night the night of the crime, I believe, when the police talked to her, was when she originally said he was missing the right eye tooth. Yeah. And since that is the freshest description post crime. That would be the one that I would go with, and Jack never lost his right eye tooth. So yeah, we we have his uh, an army induction physical from 1962, which of course includes the dental uh, portion, and the dental portion says he was missing no teeth in 1962. Hmm. So, did you ever come up with who you thought did it, um, or have an opinion on that? There are two opinions. I'll let Jeff go first. Yeah, okay. Uh, my my opinion is that of the people that were looked at oh, during the 1957 to 1958 um, original investigation in uh, 
I believe it was May of 1958, a man by the name of John Hilburn came to the attention of the police, and he worked for Quaker Oats up in Rockford. And when they went and looked at him, because he had just been convicted for molesting his six-year-old daughter, they asked him about his whereabouts on that day. And he gave them the story that he had gone to visit his cousin in Rochelle, Illinois, which is a little bit, it's a bit west and a bit south of Sycamore. And he had gotten lost on his way back, drove through Sycamore, and stopped and asked two little girls on that street corner how to get back to the highway. Now, understand, this is a seven- and an eight-year-old girl. I don't know anybody who has seven- and eight-year-old kids' directions anywhere. So that that set off some alarm bells in my head. And on top of that, uh, when the Illinois State Trooper would to interview uh, John Hilburn's cousin, he said that John Hilburn came to his place often. How do you get lost going home from a place you visit often? It just didn't make any sense. And he initially refused to take a lie detector test. And eventually he did take a lie detector test and passed. But, you know, who knows if he had coaching or whatnot. Um, Because it is possible if you're prepared to uh, defeat a lie detector test, especially in those days. But at the same time, we'll never know for sure because he was put in a lineup and Kathy failed to identify him. But by this time, it's six months after the crime and her memory is going to be absolutely useless at that point. So that's my opinion, is if anyone that they actually looked at was a viable suspect, to me, he's the most viable. Um, Dennis believes a little different. Yeah, I, I don't think Hilburn is the guy, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll concede if somebody comes up with uh, some real strong evidence that he was. Um, I used to think that uh, this guy named uh, Bill Krigo, uh, who was uh, a strong suspect a couple or three days after the uh, kidnapping, had a real good chance of, of being the right person. He had a previous conviction for attempted molestation of a 13-year-old babysitter, and he had spent some time at Stateville Prison. And then after getting out, he had moved to uh, another small town in Kingston where he had uh, he had continued to molest little girls in the neighborhood where he lived. Um, but and he was first uh, when he was first asked for uh, information about where he was on December 3rd, he gave them a list of places where he was on December 4th. So when investigators started checking out, uh, they found out, gosh, this, everything this guy has told us uh, or virtually everything he's told us turns out not to be true. So he became a very strong suspect and there was a, a lineup set up. Uh, for December 7th, four days after the crime. And this was a face-to-face lineup with uh, five people in it. And uh, Kathy Sigmund uh, did not pick him out of the lineup, though she did say that he resembled Johnny, but he was different. His voice was different than what uh, she remembered Johnny's voice as being. 
Johnny's voice, by the way, she had said was was high and thin and sounded much more like her mother's than her dad's voice. Um, but uh, when Krigo gave his um, real alibi, when he remembered later, uh, the things that he was doing did sort of check out, though his wife was a strong part of his alibi, which is, means it's not a strong alibi. But one of the members or one of the guys who was a, a tavern owner in the small town where he was living uh, said that he was there at, uh, I believe, 7 or 7.30 that night. And uh, that pretty much sealed him as uh, being a suspect. Um, so I'm of an opinion now that the correct answer, looking at everybody who was investigated by the FBI or the ISP, Illinois State Police, after the crime, uh, I think the answer is none of the above. We're, we're looking for someone who's an absolute monster when you look at uh, the cause of death, uh, at least three stabbings to the upper chest that uh, where the knife blade went all the way back to the to the backbone and left indentations. That That's a monster. Uh, that's worse than someone who just plays around with young girls. That's much worse. And, and also, one of the things that I've kind of um, come to believe, too, is that whoever did this with Maria, that wasn't their first time. When you when you study people that kidnap children and stuff, their first crime is always this panicked grab and dash, basically. Get them in the car and go. You know, they don't talk with them they don't hang out with them they don't try and befriend them they don't give them piggyback rides like miss johnny did they're not that comfortable and so i think this is someone who had been doing it for a while and by this time it was at least i believe maria was probably his fourth or fifth victim which is another reason why i think it probably wasn't john hilbert so I'd have to agree with Dennis. Is it's probably someone we don't know and may never know. Wow. So where do we go from here? What's going on with with uh, Jack now and and his family members? Has he reconciled with any of the the stepsisters or um, what's going on now? No, absolutely, absolutely not. He has said and he stated this again to me just a couple nights ago that he will never forgive them. You know, he said they tried to kill me, you know, to put me in prison away for life as a former police officer and someone accused of murdering a little girl. That's that's almost a guaranteed death sentence. So he he has no forgiveness for them. And uh, I don't think they would ask it anyway. I think they still believe he did it. And, uh, you know, that's that's too bad. But it was too bad to begin with. Um, I think uh, what's going on with him now is, as I mentioned, he uh, he has settled uh, with some of the agencies that put him in prison. And uh, he's using that money to buy a new home uh, somewhere else in the state of Washington. Uh, and he's basically starting a new life over. He's been happy to be out, and uh, his family continues, his immediate family, his wife and his daughter, Janie and uh, Casey, 
they uh, continue to support him, and he's enjoying his grandchildren. Well, that's a good thing. Um, now, now, uh, Dennis, just being from there, what do you do? You have any idea of what the town of Sycamore thinks? Um, you know, later, like um, of course, when he got convicted and then let out, is is there things you hear about that come from the town, uh, one way or the other? Yeah, uh, John Tessier got away with this for fifty-four years, served five-year sentence, and now he's getting away with it again. And I, I think that pretty well sums up the average attitude of uh, the Sycamore resident, or at least the Sycamore residents who think about this, who are old enough to remember this. Yeah, I, I think the city of Sycamore had its uh, closure when he was convicted, and yeah. now it's reopened the wound, and they're not happy about that at all. So it's much easier for them to believe that he got away with it again. Yeah, that certainly is the attitude of the surviving Ridoff uh, siblings. There's only two now, Chuck and uh, Pat, are the only two remaining. And uh, Chuck Ridoff was rather influential out there. That That is almost certainly his attitude. I, I read his book, and he makes no bones about it. Uh, Jan Tessier is the guy who did this. Well, it makes me wonder why um, the town is so set against him. Uh, was he just not well liked, or his family not liked, or what? What, what do you think it is? I wouldn't say the family wasn't well liked. Um, I, I think they, everybody that I talked to who knew him, I did not know him, uh, but everybody I talked to who did just considered him just very odd um, and very different, and maybe they were ready to accept uh, whoever the 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 police and the prosecution brought forward and said, this is the guy who did this. So uh, my question is, what if they had brought somebody else up? Would they also have glommed down to whoever that somebody else was, the way they glommed down to, to Jack as being the, the guy? I, I don't know. I think maybe they would have. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, Chuck has his reasons for wanting closure, and I can understand that. Uh, absolutely. I mean, our, our heart goes out to the Riddell family. Our heart goes out to the city of Sycamore because this was uh, this was a horrible, horrible crime. There's no doubt about that. And uh, whoever did it was absolutely a monster. And I think when you decide wholeheartedly that, you know, uh, whoever gets convicted for it, that he's the monster, it's kind of hard to give up your monsters. Right. Yeah. It kind of gets established. And now, do you guys um, have a website for this, or is it just for sale, And um, or is there a place that you want people to go on the Internet to find it or find you? There is a website. It's um, aconvenientman.wordpress dot com and basically we've uh, we've put investigative material and court uh, court uh, transcripts and things like that up there um, we do invite comments and if they want to buy it probably the simplest is just go on Amazon it's available in paperback and Kindle yeah. and uh, there will be an audio book coming out on it in the not too distant future through uh, Audible 
Well, that'll be interesting. So what's next for you guys? What do you plan on doing? Uh, are you following up with this case or going to do another one, or are you guys going to retire? <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm probably going to be um, – I'll be looking at a few other cases. Uh, I'm still interested in true crime. I don't know that I will write that much more as far as a long involved book like this. This was a five year research project and uh, five years of our lives put into this book. And that's it, a little bit reflected in the size. It's pretty, pretty hefty tome. But uh, uh, I think I'm going to go on to some other nonfiction projects for a while. Yeah, I, I'm done with this story. I think I've told it. I I feel like I accomplished what I set out to do. It was a lot more work than I thought it was going to be initially, but it's done. And uh, I don't know what I'm going to be moving on to. Uh, my wife's got a thriving business, and I, I keep the books for her, and uh, that is keeping me very busy. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. How, how was it when you guys were doing the um – investigating and talking to people and stuff um are people pretty receptive to it or are they are they um still pretty friendly to you when you go around questioning people or is it was it still pretty tight well the, the ones that we were able to talk to were pretty welcoming uh in particular richard schmack was probably the one he was the prosecutor uh, or not the prosecutor the state's attorney that handled the case when um, his conviction was overturned. And after his review of everything, uh, he agreed. He didn't fight it. He said, yeah, absolutely. There's no way this guy could have done it. And uh, he's been very forthcoming and very generous with his time. And uh, we can't do anything but thank him for that. Mm -hmm. Um as we said, the Ridoffs don't want to talk to anybody about it anymore, and neither do the Chapmans and, of course, the Tessiers. Uh, they they have uh, uh, made no bones about they're not interested in talking. But there have been a lot of people that we have talked to about the case. Even when they disagreed with our findings, they were at least willing to talk to us, like yeah. Pam Long. Pam Long, right. You know. And uh, a couple other people that we've talked to, and they 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 love to talk about it. I mean, for Sycamore, this is part of their identity. People who have edited themselves into this story, to the extent where a couple of them actually wound up on the witness stand presenting evidence against Jack McCullough at trial. How is it going to work where um, cops can't change evidence, or detectives, I guess I should say, or can't? manipulate things is there, do you have any plan or anything that you can say to say to that well the one thing that i think should be uh made part of the case law is that when someone wrongfully put convicts somebody if there is um actual changing of facts hiding of witnesses uh, things that are definitely crossing the line. I think that until the person is released from prison, that's when the clock should start. Because right now, at the time of conviction, you only have two to three years, depending on what. You know, okay, three years in Illinois. Um, 
to file uh, charges against whoever convicted you. Well, as we've seen, it takes a minimum of five years to go through the appeals process. So, in essence, that's that five years is nothing. And how many people are in prison for 20 years because they were railroaded? Uh, I think that the clock should not start at the time of the conviction. It should start at the time that the conviction is overturned. That's that's number one thing. Then they face real consequences. Yeah, I totally agree that the clock ran out in this case because because of this three year uh, statute of limitations. By the time a special prosecutor started looking at this, uh, everybody who had uh, had done wrongdoing uh, was scot free. And then, except and for the one lady from Seattle because she lived out of state. But the special prosecutor said he could not uh, get to a point where he could charge her with perjury, so she got away as well. Yeah, so it really should it really should be a matter of because if you think about it, if someone was to kidnap you, and you know they said, well, there's a seven year limitation statute of limitations on this. At seven years and one day, if you escape then, they couldn't be prosecuted. That makes no sense. The way it works in kidnapping is until you're freed, it's an ongoing crime. And I think it should be considered that way uh, with these, these jail sentences for people that are innocent when the cops or the prosecution fudges things to make it work. That's that's what's reasonable is because to my mind, it's the same thing as kidnapping. I mean, you're kidnapped, but legally by the government until such a time as uh, you get out. Just a just another crazy case. Um, well, guys, I really appreciate appreciate you being here. Um, the book we're talking about is The Convenient Man. Our guests have been the authors, Dennis Tomlinson and Jeffrey Dean Doty. Thank you for being here on the show. Well, thank you for thank you for having us. We appreciate it. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.